The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Uh, today's scripture reading is out of Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 23. If you're following along on the books under the chairs, it's going to be on page 882, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, it is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So here's something I know about every person in this room. Now, some of you I know really well, too well, Dale, that some of us in this room that I kind of know okay, and then some of you I've never met before. But here's something I know about you. No matter who you are, or where you're from, or what brings you here this morning, here's what I know, that you want to change. Every person in this room, no matter how well life is going for you, or how poorly life is going for you right now, one thing that we all have in common is that every person in this room wants to change. There's something about your life, your personality, your circumstance, habits, something that you would like to change. If you could, if you could have one wish this morning, that would be the thing that you would change. It might be circumstances around you. It might be something that you do. It might be something that you're doing right now. It's something that we all share in common is that we all want to change. No matter where we are in life, we want to grow. We want to be more. We want to do more. We want to be better. And yet here's something else that many of us share in common this morning is that there's a secret, either knowledge or fear inside us that we're sort of, we either know that we can't change because we've tried before or we're afraid that we can't change. We're afraid that we're stuck right where we are and that thing that really needs to change that could bring down your life, could bring down your marriage, could bring down your family, could bring down your career, maybe I won't be able to change it after all. So we're in the season that's leading up to Easter, and traditionally in the history of Christianity, it's the 40 days before Easter is called Lent. And historically or traditionally, what happens in Lent is that Christians uh, meditate on, think about, examine their heart 
for, to see what in my life needs to change. It's a season of examining in my heart what is in my life is not in proper alignment. What is it in my life that is out of order, that is out of the way that things should be? We'll be thinking about that this morning. And here, hopefully this will be some encouragement to you as we go along, is that one of the interesting things about Christianity is unlike some other religions and like some other cultures, uh, we view our heroes very differently. Other cultures and other religions, we, we have to kind of prop our heroes up to be almost infallible. Uh, think about the early legend in America of George Washington, right? He was always honest. You know, he's a kid. He cut down the cherry tree for some reason, and somebody asked him, did you cut down the cherry tree? And he said, I can't tell a lie. I did cut it down. We call uh, Abraham Lincoln Honest Abe. We have to, like, try to build these fables around people so that our heroes that make them seem unfallible. But Christianity is very different in that our heroes, we'll start with the apostles today, the 12 people, the 12 men who were Jesus' inner circle, handpicked by Jesus to be his inner circle, those 12 men are incredibly fallible. They are messed up dudes. Jesus picks them, and they're not exactly the cream of the crop when he picks them. They're peasants, they're, they're fishermen, they're a couple of guys that call them the sons of thunder, so they're the partiers. They're, they got a, a, he pulls a tax collector, which nobody trusts, like an IRS agent on his, like, maybe more like an attorney, Jonathan. He grabs an attorney and he puts him on his team. Like, nobody really trusts him. Like, you know, he, he's got this motley group of people that nobody really respects. And then all along the way, they don't really ever get it. He's been telling them for weeks and months that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And they just don't get it. They're continually failing. In fact, if you know the story at all, you know that in, in just a couple of days, whenever he is killed in the story, when, they, when he is killed, they're going to be nowhere to be seen. So you're in good company if you're a person that needs to change and you have trouble doing it. And they say, a man is known by the company he keeps. So what does that make Jesus? If the 12 men that were closest to him were jokers and losers, and when the chips are down, they're not even by his side. Some of you have friends that are jokers and losers, but when the chips are down, they're still by your side. They're not much help, but they're still there. They just, they just forget them all together. He's hanging out with people who are in dire need of change. So we're going to look here at this last night of Jesus' life, this last meal that he has. And we're not just going to look on how he spends it, but we're going to see who is he spending it with. And we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see Jesus eats his last meal. Jesus eats with dirty, rotten traitors. Jesus eats with selfish social climbers. And Jesus eats with weak-willed, wishy-washy friends. Jesus eats with dirty, rotten traitors. Jesus eats with selfish, social climbers. And Jesus eats with wishy-washy, weak-willed friends. 
Starting in verse 1 of chapter 22, if you have your Bible open, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, or that's Jesus, to death, for they feared the people. So here's what's going on. Jesus has turned the nation of Israel upside down. He's come to Jerusalem now on the biggest uh, week, the biggest week in the Jewish calendar. There are thousands and thousands of extra people in the city of Jerusalem. He is preaching by day in the temple and drawing huge crowds. And he has upended the social structure, the power structure that the chief priests and the scribes, which are their buddies, are used to. And so they have been trying to figure a way to get Jesus marginalized for a while. Then they try to figure out how they can shut him up. And now they finally decided the only way we're going to be able to do it is we're going to have to kill the man to shut him up. But here's the problem. We can't go out and arrest him when everybody's around because the people will mob us because they like him. So we have to figure out a way to find out where Jesus is when the people aren't around so we can arrest him and kill him when the, the mobs of people won't hurt us in return. So then it tells us in verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. So, by the way, this is one of Jesus' inner circle. Satan enters him. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus calls Peter and John. He says, here's what I want you guys to do. I want you guys to go and prepare the place that we're going to have the Passover meal together. And they said, how are we going to do that? Verse 9, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover so Peter and John go, they prepare the Passover, then Jesus and all his 12 inner circle, they come to the upper room, they're going to celebrate Passover together, which just by the way, would have been unusual already because you always celebrated Passover with your family. And so Jesus is making a statement about these disciples are his family, which is an interesting thing when you think about just like what losers they are and he knows that they're losers. And so they get together and they have the Passover meal. And while they're sitting there, verse 21, well, we'll start with verse 20. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, we're going to come back. He took it saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who's going to betray him. Now, here's the interesting thing is that Judas was a trusted member of Jesus' inner circle. He was one of the 12 who were very close. So Jesus had like a, a large crowd of people always around him. Then he had about 500 people who were like his kind of congregation. And then he had 75 people who were his disciples who were like being trained for ministry. And then the core of that 75, he had 12 men who were his very closest inner circle. And Judas is one of those 12, very closest to Jesus. 
For years now, maybe about three years, Judas would have shared meals and would have slept wherever Jesus slept the whole time. Judas had gone out with the other disciples under the authority of Jesus and had performed miracles in his name. And on top of that, he was the keeper of the money bag. He was the treasurer for their little ministry. So he was a trusted man. When Jesus said, the hand of the betrayer is here with me at the table, there was nobody at the table that thought, oh, that's Judas. They all were wondering, I wonder who it could be. No one would have suspected it was, it was Judas. And yet we see in the, back in verse 4, it says that he's the one that went and conferred with the chief priests and the officers. They didn't approach him. He approached them on how he might betray Jesus. Now here's the interesting thing to me, is that Jesus knows that Judas is the betrayer. He's just set it at the table. Jesus may have known for quite some time that Judas was going to betray him. We don't know. It's possible that Jesus had known Judas was going to be the man who was going to betray him from the very moment he first called him to follow him. But even if he didn't know it was Judas to begin with, he knew one of his very core disciples were going to end up betraying him. It had been foretold. And yet Jesus, through this whole time, lives and eats and sleeps, either knowing that one of these guys who are looking at me, one of these guys that are sharing all these meals with me, one of these guys that were lying down to sleep in the same room together, one of these men are going to betray me and turn me over. And yet he shared his life with them. He's here reclining at the Passover table. That's how you would have the Passover meal together. You would recline at the table. You would be laying on your side on the kind of a kind of a couch sofa thing. And he's reclining with Judas beside him. He's not angry. He's not being passive aggressive. He's not shaming Judas in front of everyone. He's there showing him patience and love till the very end. Now, we don't really see much about Judas until this moment. We know he was the keeper of the money. But we don't really know. The the question that I have is, how did he get to this point? How did Judas, one of the men who followed Jesus, had been sharing life with him for all this time, how did he get to the point where he's like, hey, I'm going to go betray Jesus? And not only that, how does he get to the point so that he's opened his life up to such so that Satan comes and possesses him? How does he get there? Well, the answer is, it probably happened little bit by little bit. We know that Judas had been embezzling for a little while. They would collect money for the poor, and Judas would take some of that out for himself. It happens, that's the way it happens. It happens little bit by little bit. A little bit of betrayal, a little bit of a callous heart, a little bit of a selfishness. And slowly, our heart is growing harder and harder, and we don't even realize it. You see, Judas wanted to change things, 
He was looking for Jesus to come and set up the kingdom the way that he wanted Jesus to set it up for. Maybe he was frustrated with Jesus wasn't doing it the way he wanted him to do it. But we do know that he was looking for power and he was looking for money. And when he saw that this train wasn't going in that direction, he decided he was going to take matters into his own hands and he was going to cause change to happen the way that he wanted it to happen. He came to Jesus looking for a change in his circumstances, and that's really the way a lot of us come to Jesus, isn't it? We first come to Jesus because we're fed up in our life, we're at our wits' end, we don't know what else to do. You know, they say there's no atheist in a foxhole, right? And some of us have been in our own foxhole. Maybe the chips are down in our life, relationships are bad, broken marriage, kids, finances, whatever it is that brought you to the final end, and in your own personal foxhole, you cry out to God. Many of us, we first come to Jesus because we're looking for a change in our circumstances, but Jesus never became anything different to Judas. Jesus was always the heavenly Santa Claus for Judas, and when the presence stopped coming the way that he thought they should come. His heart turned far away from him. The scary thing for me and the scary thing for all of us in this room is that we all do that, don't we? We come to Jesus looking for our own agenda and whenever he doesn't do it the way I want him to do it, we either try to force change on our own Here's a scary thing. Proximity to Jesus doesn't save you. Judas shared life with Jesus. He shared meals with Jesus. He may have slept beside Jesus in the same room. Hearing Jesus' teaching, even hearing Jesus' teaching firsthand, like you guys are having to hear me preach this morning, Judas got to hear Jesus himself preach the gospel. That doesn't save you. Seeing Jesus, seeing miracles performed in Jesus' name doesn't save you. Judas had seen Jesus raise the dead, heal the sick. In fact, he had participated that himself in the name of Jesus. It didn't save him. Sharing the first communion meal with Jesus doesn't save you. Judas was witnessing history firsthand. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. He was celebrating the the initial, original communion. It didn't save him. Only humble faith saves you. Only seeing Jesus as your king saves you. Not a king that's going to put you in a position of power so you can reap the benefits, but your personal king who whenever he says go, you go, and he says stop, you stop. Only seeing Jesus as the prize saves you. Jesus isn't a means to another end. He is the prize himself. The hardening of our hearts happen slowly and gradually. We may be aware of it or we may not be aware of it, but we often watch it like a hypnotized bystander. If somebody asks you, you could say, yes, I know I'm 
my heart is being hardened, but it starts to matter less and less to you. And I pray there would be some in this room today who would be awakened from that deadly slumber. I pray that I would be awakened from that deadly slumber. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Jesus ate with dirty, rotten traitors. And Jesus ate with selfish social climbers. We see Jesus, I mean, Judas, who, like, I mean, we can understand how he's going wrong. Satan himself entered into him, right? Well, the rest of the disciples, the rest of the apostles, his inner circle, they're not doing that great either. Look at verse 24. So Jesus has been telling them for weeks and months, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to die. They had the Passover meal. He just stood up and said, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood shed for you. He sits down. He says, the man who's going to betray me is here at the table. And what's the next thing we see recorded? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Jesus is facing down death this very night. And they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. We see Jesus' closest friends are with him. And they love him and they care for him. And they have faith in him. But yet we see that they are at their core. They're selfish and they're power hungry. They're selfish social climbers. They're drawn to Jesus for at least in part for what they will get in return. They want to, they want to be served or they want, to, they want Jesus to get them in a position to be served. And isn't that the American dream? The American dream is to get my life in a position so that I don't have to do anything I don't want to have to do. I don't, yes, I don't want to have to do anything I don't want to do, sorry. And anything that I don't want to do, I can have enough money that I can outsource that to someone else. That's the true American dream. We want to be served. And yet Jesus throws that idea on its head. He says the path to greatness isn't marked by like service. It's not like marked by service. Like I have to serve in order to get to a position of greatness. He says greatness is service. Serving is greatness itself. After all, in verse 27, for who is the greater? The one who reclines at table, the one who serves? Well, they would have answered us, the one who reclines at the table is the greatest. But he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And while many of us were drawn to come to Jesus, ask, looking for what we can get in return, looking for uh, to climb in social status, God, help me to make more money, help me to have more friends, help me to have a better body, help me have a nicer car, help me be more successful, help me to do, Jesus says the path of greatness is the path of service. And yet, 
the very core of his followers are sitting there with him on this night where he's facing down death. He's predicted it. He is staring at it in its face. And they're worried about who's going to be greater. We're like that. I'm like that. If I'm honest, I'm thinking about my reputation. I'm thinking about how people view me. I'm looking for my own pleasure and my own comfort. If I'm honest, I really want my family and my friends to make my life easier. If I'm honest, I really want my family and friends to be such that they serve me and help my life, enrich my life. But to follow Jesus is to follow him in the path of serving. Jesus eats with dirty, rotten traitors. He eats with selfish social climbers. And then we see that Jesus eats with wishy-washy, weak-willed friends. Peter, or Simon as we see him called here, Simon Peter was one of Jesus' very closest friends. So you have the congregation, you have the 75, you have the 12, and then inside that 12 you have the three disciples that are closest to Jesus. He takes them Everywhere we see him go, he takes them with him. Peter and James and John, thick as thieves together. And, G- and Peter's time with Jesus had been marked with great victories, right? I mean, no other disciple has walked on water. That's a pretty big victory, right? Right? I mean, he was a man of faith. He saw Jesus on the storm, out in the water. They're in the boat. They think they're going to die. Then they see a man, like they think it's a ghost, walking on the water. He recognizes Jesus, and, and he has the, the faith not just to say, wow, Jesus, that's awesome, but to say, hey, Jesus, can I come out and walk out in the water with you? That's a lot of faith. And Jesus says, yes, come on. He walked on He Sure, he ended up sinking, but he walked on water. Who in here has done that? Not only has he walked on water, but Peter has been the one disciple who, for a moment of shining, glimmering clarity, understood who Jesus was. And Jesus said, who do people say I am? They said, well, some people think you're Elijah, some people think you're a prophet. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter's the one who pipes up. You are the son of God. You're the Messiah. He, He has a moment of pure clarity that none of the other disciples had. He's a man of faith. And yet we also see he's a man (laughs) who is wishy-washy and weak-willed. Not many verses after he confesses Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the chosen one, Jesus ends up having to turn around to him and say, he tells him, get behind me, Satan. Peter's kind of up and down. He's wishy-washy. He's weak-willed. And here is Jesus sitting at this table, staring death down, sharing this last meal that he's going to eat on earth. And he's looking around at his friends, at his closest inner circle, including Peter, who is part of the very closest, very inner circle. And he knows that in a few hours, they are all going to betray me. 
they're all going to disappear. In my hour of greatest need, they are going to scatter. And he looks at Peter, and he says in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's pretty big for the Lord to say to you, right? Satan's demanded to sift you like wheat. I prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you do turn again, because it will look like it fails, when you do mess up and you turn again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter's response isn't to say, thank you for your prayers, Lord. I really need them. I do feel that I am weak-willed and weak-minded. Peter responds by saying, verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Now, I don't know how long you've been walking with the Lord, and maybe some of you haven't. I hope people are in here who haven't placed their faith and trust in him at all. But if you've been walking with Jesus very long, you've had moments like Peter is having right now. It might be at a conference, it might be in a church service, it might be listening to some worship music, driving to work, and you're like, you feel God's presence, you feel like, oh man, this is real. You're like, man, I'm saying no to every bad thing. I'm saying yes to you, Jesus. I'm following you all the way. I will never deny you the rest of my, like you can't even imagine. I can't imagine not waking up and getting in the Bible and reading. I can't imagine not like being faithful to you. I can't imagine not like, and yet, like the next day, you're like, yeah. A week later, a month later, like the next minute, you're like cussing at somebody on the road. Jesus is here eating and sharing the last meal of his life with his closest friends that he knows are weak, and are full of fantastic failures. Jesus is sharing his life and sharing his last meal with Peter, one of his very closest. And not only is Peter going to desert him in his hour of need, he's predicting that Peter, when the rubber meets the road, you're not just going to desert me. You're going to deny that you even know who I am. And how many of us can relate to that. I know I am weak and I am full of fantastic failures. I am wishy-washy and I am weak-willed. My life with Jesus often looks like a bad stock market chart. It's just like up and down, up and down like this. I can't ever seem to get my act together for very long and it all seems to fall apart. And yet, an encouragement should be that Jesus is spending his life and the last evening of that life and the last meal of that life with a group of people who are traitors, who are selfish social climbers, and who are wishy-washy and weak-willed. 
Why is the question, would Jesus surround himself with these kind of people? Well, it tells us something about, a few things about Jesus, and it tells us a couple of things about the disciples and about ourselves. The first thing it tells us about Jesus is that he is patient. Jesus called these disciples, and along the way, he knows just how. He knows that one will betray him. He knows they're going to be wishy-washy and weak-willed. And he knows that they are using him, some of them, to climb the social ladder, to access power through him. And yet he's patient with them. He brings them along with him. He shares his life and his meals with them. He is incredibly patient with us, isn't he? That says more about him than it does about us. Every human being is fantastically flawed, and we know it. Even if we put up a front and people around us think that we're the most confident person they've ever met, it's often time to make up for a true lack of confidence that we feel. We chase power because we don't feel powerful. We chase security because we don't feel secure. We chase beauty because we don't feel beautiful. Every human being is fantastically flawed and yet he is incredibly patient. Doesn't that make you want to love him? He is so patient with us. Whenever I sinned yesterday and I confessed to him afterwards, it was no surprise to him. It didn't throw him off. It didn't derail him. He didn't say, oh man, I didn't see that coming or I wouldn't have called him to be my son. He saw every wrong thing that you would do, not only in the past, but everything in the future. And he is patient through it. It tells us that he is not only patient, but he is forgiving. He's sitting at the meal with Peter, knowing that Peter is going to betray him. And he's already forgiven him before he even does it. I couldn't do that. If I was sitting around with you guys having lunch and I knew one of you was going to betray me, I would at the very least be giving you the cold shoulder. Probably being passive aggressive. And if I got angry enough, just outright aggressive and just leave. I'll go find some real friends. But Jesus is forgiving He's patient, he's forgiving, and he is committed. He's playing the long game with his disciples. And he's playing the long game with you in your life. He doesn't see you as, he's not, 
He hasn't called you as his daughter or his son because of who you are today. He's called you as his daughter or son because of who you will be a million years from now. A glittering, shining trophy of his goodness and grace. And it tells us a couple of things about us. Number one, that we as humans are capable of great wickedness. Isn't that true? Like, don't think about other humans, but like, if you look at human history, it's full of just tremendous wickedness and atrocities. You have to wonder, like, just watch the news. How could that happen? But don't project it onto other people. Think about your own life. and my, Let me think about my life and just how wicked I am and have been. The things that I've done and the things that I've thought about doing that I didn't do, but I really wanted to. To those who were closest to me, that I love the most, who trust me the most. Things that I didn't do, but I entertained doing, that I would be embarrassed for you to even know. We are capable of great wickedness, but here is the hopeful thing on the other side, is that we are also capable of great change. These apostles that don't get it here at the last meal are going to desert him and scatter everywhere. Peter, who's going to betray him and deny that he even knows him three times, and just a few weeks from now, they're going to be standing boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus, regardless of what it will cost them, and it will cost every one of their lives. We are capable of great wickedness. And yet we are also, of, also capable of great change. And how, is, how does that happen? Well, let's look back the passage that Tyson read for us, starting in verse 14. This is how Jesus could have this last meal on this last night of his life with this motley crew of people that you and I can relate to. And when the hour, when the hour had come, He reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not eat I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took bread. As a part of the Passover meal, there have been four cups of wine on the table. The first cup he's already picked up. This is probably the, uh, in between the second cup, he takes up the bread, which would have been a a piece of uh, unleavened bread. And whenever he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is what? Given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. This is how Jesus could have this meal, this last meal, with those who are just the worst. This Passover meal would be remembering 
when the Israelites were in Egypt. And God finally is going to deliver them out of Egypt. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my angel of justice or my angel of judgment into the land of Egypt. But here's the thing. All men are sinners. All men are fatally flawed. No matter whether you are Jew or not, Christian or not, we're all fatally flawed. As the angel of justice comes across, death will follow unless... You sacrifice a lamb or a goat and you take the blood and you put the blood over your, the doorpost of your house or on the doorpost of your house and you eat that lamb or that goat as a sacrifice to, to know that my blood has covered you and I will look over you because of the blood on your doorposts and you'll be saved. And Jesus is saying, This is how you, you wishy-washy, weak-willed, you social climbers, you users, this is how you can be with me on my last meal. That my body, like the body of that lamb, will be broken and my blood will be shed for you. To cleanse you but not just to cover and look over to next year, but to actually change you. And when you see Jesus, like the disciples saw him that night, as they would look back, as the one who is patient and forgiving and committed, all the way to the point of serving them on the cross to shed his blood and give his life for them. When you see him as that, in light of your own sorriness and wickedness, then he becomes precious to you. And that changes you. His love changes you. His grace changes you. And the presence and power of his Holy Spirit changed you. We'll end with this. What's the difference between Jesus and his interaction with Judas and his interaction with Peter who would deny him? Peter would come back to him. Peter would repent. And Peter would believe in him. Even though that belief was oftentimes faltering. The only hope for true and lasting change is at the table with Jesus. We're gonna sing together, or at least the band's gonna play. Let's just take a couple minutes while they play. If you wanna sing, if you wanna sit, whatever is appropriate for uh, where you are right now. Just to think and meditate about Where is your heart? Is it hardening? Are you looking at Jesus for what you can get out of him and you get frustrated when you don't get it? Are you wishy-washy and weak-willed? Let's see Jesus in his beauty and glory as the lamb who was slain for us. Let that erupt a love inside us that will change us and continue to change us and love him for who he is.
Father, I pray that we would see you afresh, that we'd see you new this morning as the lamb who was slain for us. That we would see the fact that even though we are weak-willed and wishy-washy, even though we don't deserve it, yet you pour out your love upon us and you poured it out on the cross, even to the point of death. Help us to discover a life that loves serving, serving you and serving the people around us. Because we're changed by your sacrifice for us. And in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.